you so much. And music and worship team, thank you for putting that together. Praise the Lord. And uh, Carla, thank you for breaking out the accordion. And uh, I want to say to you all, if we ever do that first song again with the, hey, hey, my wife wants to audition for that part, okay? (laughs) Honey, go ahead. Yeah, all right. She can do that. All right. Did you not find anybody for the stump fiddle tonight? Oh, man. Well, well, I, I'm always on the platform. I wanted someone else to do it. Um, I nominate um, uh, Daniel Crumley, okay? Daniel's going to do the stump fiddle next time, okay? So come up with something where we need a stump fiddle, and Daniel, Daniel has just been volunteered, all right? Uh, Genesis chapter 15. Um, let me ask you, do you feel like you're being productive in these days? Are, are you touching people's lives? Uh, are they getting closer to coming to Jesus? Are they coming to Jesus? Uh, I want to help you with that tonight if, uh, if you need to be more uh, productive. There are some that are nervous about talking about numbers in ministry. Uh, apparently, God is not. Uh, there's a lot more to ministry than numbers. There's integrity and there is a spiritual power and those kind of things. But Jesus did say in John 15, 16, you did not appoint me, but uh, or you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go forth and bear much fruit. And they did. There's the book of Acts to explain that. And so God's expectation is, is that we will give birth to new Christians. We will bring them to the Lord, raise them up in uh, the way of Christ, help them grow and mature, find the baptistry, find the Bible, uh, find the building, and uh, walk with God with his people and back into the world to reach more people for Christ. Uh, you know, someone took that seriously in our lives, and so they reached us. And uh, it, uh, uh, it's uh, obligatory on us to reach others, and not just obligatory, it's a loving thing to do, it's the purpose we're here, and uh, that's why God lets us live out these weary days until then because um, we, we need to reach more people and God loves them and so we share that love uh, we have that same kind of heart and so God does want us to be uh, productive now there are some uh, that have found it fashionable in uh, these last days to <clears throat> run numbers down uh, I've never been a fan of doing that I've never said numbers are the only thing and I've never been satisfied with just numbers uh, I'm, I'm interested in true conversion and true discipleship and, and integrity, uh, very much so. Growth in godliness and purity, but those are not exclusive of numbers. I will tell you, those who run numbers down uh, and, and, and are uh, against counting your attendance and counting your baptisms and counting Sunday school attendance, you know what they do count? They count their money. Now, why is that? Yeah, it's what's important to them. Yeah, oh, every one of them that runs numbers down counts their money. Now, I do suspect, and I actually, I got into the thick of this. For 12 years, the only thing I thought about was evangelism. <clears throat> it's not the way it is as a pastor. You think about a lot of other things, but with the GBC and Southwestern, I drilled down into one subject for 12 years, and all I thought was about evangelism and how to get numbers up. Uh, because when you're talking about the number of people that are genuinely saved and the number of marriages restored, the number of families brought back together, the number of people going to heaven, that was pretty important to me and is to God. really is. But um, I, I did agree with Leon Kilbreth, the old Sunday school man, who said 
that uh, there are many of those who, uh, that run numbers down because they're too lazy to run them up. It takes a lot of hard work to get people to Jesus. It is. A lot of hard work. And you can't be lazy. And, and the big thing is you can't be distracted. You've got to know what to do. And so you listen to people that have been effective. And uh, that's terribly, terribly important. Well, I want to help you with that tonight. If you're not leading the people to Christ, uh, that you need to be leading to Christ. And I want to do that from Genesis chapter 16. And there are several helps that are found here. And the first one is, or several directives here, renew your faith. Renew your faith and your trust in God. Uh, verse 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Now look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. What God does here is that when Abram is discouraged about the lack of numbers in his children... God ends up renewing his faith. That's the first thing, renew your faith. And there are three new things he gives him to renew his faith. One is a new gaze. In verse 1, he says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. So chapter 14 is not going to be another, a problem again. I was your shield in chapter 14 when you took on uh, the four victorious kings um, uh, that you did that came after your nephew Lot. So I'm your shield, and then I'm your exceedingly great reward. You're concerned about what you don't have? Let me direct your gaze to what you do have. You've got me. You've got me. Hold on. This thing is going to work. You get a new gaze here. The important discipline that all of us have got to have when we're struggling with discouragement about our productivity is to discipline our minds to focus on what God has given us. Because if you look at your lack, you're going to get discouraged and you're not going to be very moved at heart to do much for God. And so he sets his attention on him. Now, Abram's got a problem here. By chapter 21, God will solve it with Isaac. He will. But I want you to notice something. Here in Genesis and throughout the rest of the Bible, you've got a diversity and variety of miracles. You've got all sorts of miracles. You've got water miracles like the Red Sea. You've got graveyard miracles like Lazarus coming out of that tomb. You've got snake miracles like Paul getting bit on the Isle of Malta and not swelling him up and killing him. You've got all sorts of miracles throughout the Bible. There's a diversity and variety of miracles. But all of these miracles have one thing in common. They all begin with a problem. Now, what does that say to you about your problems? What does that say to you about the things that discourage you? Every one of your problems is a seedbed, an opportunity for God to come through with a miracle. Get your eyes on that. 
even in the midst of your discouragement, even in the midst of your difficulty, even in the midst of your lack of productivity, have a new gaze and put it on the God who transforms every problem into a mighty work of His that He stamps His power upon. So there's a new gaze, but there's not all. There's also a new direction. In verse number 4 and 5, what God does here is He does what He did back in chapter 12. He reiterates His Word. Verses 4 and 5 are not the first time you've seen these words. You've seen these back in chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3 and verse number number 13. And so God repeats His Word. He brings Abram back to His Word. Look here. The Word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, now look towards the heaven. Count the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your descendants be. Abram, get your eyes off of the rest of the world and the other families. They're not your example. Uh, get, Get your eyes off of your own family, your extended family, where they're having kids all over the place. No, no, that's not your method. That's not your direction. Your direction is my word. Now, folks, in a day of the knowledge explosion of the Christian faith, where the publishing houses are really ruling the churches through their publications. Let me make sure you understand. A lot of the blog posts can be very helpful. A lot of the publications can be very helpful. A lot of the podcasts can be very helpful. A lot of the hallway conversations can be very helpful, but they've got to stay in their place. They are not the substance of ministry and productivity. They are supplements to ministry and productivity. The substance is the living Word of God. Every Christian has got to mature to where he or she can walk with God in such a way that he or she can set aside all of the publications, all of the blog posts, all of the hallway conversations, eliminate all of those, go before God with nothing more than a Bible and get a word from God about how to be productive. Everyone has... See, listen, we, we don't believe in Catholicism, but we sure do practice it. We don't have priests in confessionals to go to God for us, but we sure do use the publishing houses. And we sure do rely upon the hallway conversations. And we sure do rely upon the, electro- the electronic medium. we got to be extremely careful. Now, you know I'm not against reading. You understand that? And, and you know I'm not against research and study. You understand that? All of that can be a wonderful supplement. But ladies and gentlemen, this is not a work that an intelligent atheist can do. In order to be productive, we've got to know Christ and walk with God in the Word because we get our direction from Him, not Nashville, not Atlanta, not a hallway conversation. These things can be good supplements, but the substance is the Word of God. And that's what God takes Him back to in verse number 4 and 5. Then a new vision. Verses 5 and 6, He says, look to the heavens. And, you know, Abraham, if you want to try and count the stars... Go ahead, but what you've got to know, that's as many descendants as you're going to have as the stars that you can count. You know what? It's happened. Y'all notice that? It's happened. 
And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now God did not express a lot of sympathy with uh, Abram's whining and complaining in verse 2 and 3. And God didn't retreat upon his promise. Instead, he moved him to place faith in a new direction, a new vision, and a new gaze. Matthew 9.29, Jesus said, Be it done to you according to your faith. In other words, your faith is the measure of the power of God in your life. You get as much power as you have faith. So God measures your faith and says, okay, that's how much power you get. So that's why you keep trusting God more. That's why you emphasize faith and trust him more and more. Be it done to you according to your faith. Now that's what this means. You and I, if we're struggling with being productive, are probably not going to be productive until we put ourselves in a position where we've got to have faith. And you know why that's so difficult for every American living today? America has done everything it can. The companies, the inventors, and others responsible for all the modern inventions we've had since World War II. Their sole purpose has been to make us comfortable and convenient. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but ministry is never comfortable or convenient when it's done according to God's will. It's always parting a Red Sea. It's always walking on water. It's always chasing down a Goliath and carrying four extra stones in your bag because you hear he's got four brothers. It's telling Israel, hush, be still, and watch the salvation of the Lord. That's what ministry is. That's precisely what ministry is. Ministry is supposed to be uncomfortable and it cannot be done without faith. It cannot be done without church. Listen to me. Look at my nose and you hear what I got to say. If the staff and I and our deacons are faithful to God, we will constantly push you and make you change and be nervous, make you nervous. There will be no rest. The moment we let you rest on your laurels, fire every one of us. You think I'm kidding? Ladies and gentlemen, God's way is always onward, upward, forward, no retreat, no back down. Listen to me, listen to me. The devil never takes a vacation. Death never rests. Our county and our state is increasingly lost. Do you think God wants us to rest on our laurels and be comfortable? No. Absolutely not. Death is coming. Hell is moving. How can you stand to let them go? See our fathers and our brothers and our children sinking down. Oh, that's perfect words for our day and our age. We need to constantly live and stretch by faith. Our teeth always need to be chattering. Our knees always need to be knocking because this is the day where God wants to show his power and the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is the day of spiritual warfare and battle and defeat of the forces of hell and destroying the works of the devil. And it's not easy and comfortable. Renew your faith. You're going to have to. Or we're going to drive you nuts around here. Number two. Reactivate obedience. Look at verse number 7. Uh, Implies some obedience. Then he'll, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to inherit it. 
So I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. You're going to inherit it. Abraham obeyed God. Now, Abraham was really prominent back in Ur. I've told you before about what archaeologists have found in Ur and the remains and the semblances of Abram's name all over the place. So he was uh, quite a prominent individual, enough to get his name on some buildings and pillars and things. Well, he left that. He left the the palatious living of Ur to go to the promised land and live in a tent. When my wife and I got married, I tried to like tent camping. (laughs) But I'm such a failure. Camping to me is the Motel 6 with the black and white TV. And, and, but the kind of transition I've had to make, that I had to make from a house or a dormitory room or an apartment to a tent was nothing like what Abram had to make from palatial living as a prominent citizen of Ur to a tent. He obeyed God. He did what God wanted him to do. And you need to see how precise this is. Um, he brought him from Ur to this land in verse 7. God was real specific in particular. He commanded him to do something, and Abram did it precisely as God said. And Abram didn't offer any substitutes. Not at all. I had a real difficult experience in 2002 when I worked for, went to work for the Georgia Baptist Convention in the evangelism office. And... Um, those who serve there and other denominational entities have as much challenges and as many challenges and difficulties as anyone else. It's not a perfect place. It sure was good. But I remember my boss, Mike Minix, vice president of evangelism, brought me on because he thought I was a good fit for the vision that we had. And we had done uh, with some wild success and effectiveness the things he wanted to do in Georgia. And um, he thought that I could... Um, be a help to it. And I was very humbled by that because he himself had been wildly effective in Lilburn and had done something great in that church. In 12 years, it went from 400 to about 1,200 in uh, Lilburn and um, had a great time there. And um, uh, I came on board and early on, we had some meetings with some other leaders in the state. And I was thrilled with Mike's vision. Uh, the, the vision he had worked too. It worked. Those churches that worked with our program and the vision he had, they had a very effective baptism to church membership ratio. And that's one of the most important numbers we measure. How many church members in a church does it take to win and baptize one person? In Georgia at the time, it was 42 to 1. It takes 42 church members in 2002 to win and baptize one person. Today, it's more like uh, twice that many. We've fallen off the cliff in Georgia. We had good years while we were there. Um, and we, we were winning, and I don't want to brag, but it was a good time, and, and um, we were having some of the highest baptism totals right before I got there and after uh, I arrived. It was good. Uh, in fact, we measured and did some specific research on the churches that participated in our program and uh, the baptism to church membership ratio for churches that did not participate was 1 to 42. And the ones that did participate in our program is 1 to 29. 
So we, we cut it. So, I mean, they cut it seriously. And in the nation, that, 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 that shook a lot of people. It got their attention. Because the one, when you get down to, into the 20s, uh, you're speaking about Texas numbers and Florida numbers, where they have a disproportionate number of megachurches. And so you have a church, of, in Georgia, you have a state like Georgia of small churches. Most of our churches run less than 100, about 80%. So we're a state of small churches. And for them to get that baptism church membership ratio number in the mountains and in South Georgia, Central Georgia, was really impressive. They knocked the ball out of the park. And um, it wasn't us that was doing it. The, the churches were doing it. We just told them what to do, and they did it. It was wonderful. So the vision was going to work. Before we implemented it, we were explaining it to a group of leaders in the state. And the meeting went okay. It wasn't as enthusiastically received as I wanted. And after the meeting, we lingered around and hung around. And a number of those leaders came to me and started giving me with some passion and intensity, some correction and some advice. They said it wouldn't work, and I have a better idea. And I listened, and I knew that the ideas they were sharing had been tried before and they didn't work. They hadn't been working since the 70s. In fact, their ideas have just about killed evangelism in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I knew that. Now, I, I listened to them politely. The stressful thing is, is that they were older than me. And I've always had intense respect for people that are older than me and a, a, a reverence. And I don't know if they sensed that and started playing me. I don't know. But I listened. And then I got real suspicious. I thought, these things have been killing our churches since the 70s. And you're real impassioned by this. This isn't adding up. And you're not telling me about people that you led to the Lord. You're not telling me about weeping before God for lost souls. So I went back to my office, and I had access to all their statistics. And I looked through their churches and their associations, and they were dying. They had been dying under their leadership. Their churches were declining. Their associations were declining. And I thought, hold on, wait, wait, wait. You're real intense and almost boisterous about your view about evangelism, and you're dying. Loud death. Boisterous decline. Intensity decline in ministry. And it occurred to me, every Southern Baptist has an opinion about the church and how it should be run and about evangelism, especially those who aren't doing it. That really broke my heart. And I say that tonight, and it pains me as much tonight to say it as it did to realize it back in 2002. I, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know if they kind of cover themselves and salve their co conscience. But do you know what? That same tendency isn't with people in the neighborhood. 
I've had people who've made a miserable mess of their lives counsel me out in the foyer on what, how to run the church. People from the community. And I finally had to tell one guy, listen, listen, listen. We're, we're okay. Because he would be telling me often about what to do with the church. And he had lost his family, and he had made a miserable mess of his life, and he's got to stand on the corner of Hawthorne and Broad and beg for money. And you're telling me, what? Folks, that tendency is everywhere outside the church and sometimes inside them too. I remember when I was a boy, I was introduced to the concept of someone that's uh, rather interesting. And let me put, pose it to you as a question. <clears throat> if you need to wrangle up some cattle on a ranch and you don't know how to do it, who are you going to hire? Somebody shows up in a cowboy suit who's never touched a cow in his life? Or somebody that shows up who's got a lot of experience doing it? You know what we call those people in Texas that have the cowboy suit and no horse or cattle? All hat and no cattle. Okay. Can I encourage you about something? Make sure that you are effectively bringing people to Jesus before you start telling people what to do. I think that's important. Obedience to God is cherished by God. And God sees it. And God hears it. Never, ever, ever, ever become the person that's all hat and no cattle. You see, Abram here has got remarkable integrity and credibility because of verse number 7. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Abram did it. So listen, you want to talk about walking by faith? Abram's not all hat, no cattle. He's not all talk and no faith. Abram has got it. Oh, my friend, what a lot of folks need to get over their discouragement and lack of productivity is to reactivate their obedience and renew their faith. But there's a third thing, and that is be ready for difficulties. Verse, uh, verses 8 through 16 of chapter 15, incredibly, incredibly important. Um, he says here that in verse number 13, he says, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Now, what's he talking about here? Egypt. He told Abraham years before, they're going to Egypt. Also, the nation whom they serve, I will judge, and afterward they'll come out with great possessions. They're going to hurt, and their hurt's going to make them rich. They're going to have abounding wealth. Abounding wealth. Because they hurt. They're going to Egypt. They're going to build the pyramids. They're going to be enslaved. And as a result of that, they're going to come out with great possessions. Hey, you remember reading the story when Israel left Egypt? Egypt's saying, get out of here. Go. Here, take all we got. Don't come back. I mean, they went crazy getting them out of, getting them out of Israel. And there's so much wealth there that they, uh, uh, when they plunder the Egyptians, and that's the word that's actually used in the text, uh, when they plunder the Egyptians, they leave with so much wealth that they've got the wealth enough to build the tabernacle described in Exodus 25 through chapter 40. 
I mean, it's remarkable what happens. That's what their suffering ended up bringing them. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Do not look at it as a strange thing, the fiery trial that's among you. One of the reasons people get discouraged with their life is, and discouraged with their uh, lack of productivity is a couple of reasons. One, they think the suffering they're go, going through should be the exception. And the scripture says, no, it's really the rule. Suffering and sacrifice should not be the exception. Suffering and sacrifice are the normal course of the Christian life. And so you're grateful when it doesn't happen. Shouldn't be difficult. But the second thing is, when it comes to suffering and productivity, is that a lot of folks forget, or they've never learned in the first place, that suffering is another tool in the tool belt to make a difference in someone else's life. Man, you talk to a Christian who's beat cancer, you can't quiet them down about how God good is, how good God is to them. You talk to somebody whose marriage God has healed, you, they can't keep quiet about it. How God has brought home a prodigal and done something in their life. In other words, what happens? Every bit of suffering becomes, becomes another tool in the tool belt to build a productive life. And that's what happened with Israel. Israel went through suffering in Egypt. They got the tool of suffering in their tool belt and built the tabernacle, which was a glory to God that even King David used in Jerusalem to magnify the Lord. And that's what suffering can do. That, that can make you productive. But there's a final thing, and that is, remember the promises. Verses 17 through 21, God goes through a ceremony with Abram and passes between some sacrifices he's laid there. But he puts Abram to sleep first. And usually in a covenant and promise ceremony that folks would go through in Abram's day, they both would pass through it, these sacrifices, a line on one side, line on the other. And they would pass through it to indicate, if I break this covenant, may what's happened to these animal sacrifices happen to me. May I suffer like they have. Well, look what happens, beginning in verse 17. Came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant to Abram, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. Then he describes it and the different uh, people's lands that he would take. What God is promising here is measurable and is specific. Abram could go to some boundaries of the land and see what God had promised to him. Your, your future can be defined by a lack of productivity if you let it, but it doesn't have to be. God can give you the land. If God could give Abram this disputed land like he has, God can give you souls. God can give you people. God can make a difference through you eternally in the lives of others. If you will begin to define the future in terms not of fears, not of anxieties, but begin to define and believe the future will look just like the promises of God. Just like them. Now, back in uh, May of last year, 
I began to sense that uh, over the next um, 18, 24, 36 months, wasn't sure of the time frame, we would be going through a lot of changes. And um, music ministry and um, uh, worship center renovation, uh, worship space committee. Um, I felt like we would go through uh, some other changes. I began to pray about two services. I uh, saw guests coming in and turning around and walking out when they couldn't find a place to sit. And since that time, we've added 50 to our Sunday morning attendance consistently. Not just one Sunday, but on average from January to the current day over last year. And I thought, well, um, boy, I got a lot on my plate. And I was feeling real anxious about it. And uh, let me just tell you, you people are easy to leave. You're the easiest people on the planet. You really are. And I've had good churches before coming to, uh, uh, coming to where am I? Beach Haven, all right? I, I have. I've had really, really good churches. I've had really, really good senior adults. I love them. I miss them. I hear when they die, and I cry, and it hurts. And you all are the easiest and the best and easiest to love. And my ministry has really never been hard in the local church. Really hadn't. Okay. Um, if you go, if, if God sends you someplace else, this is not normal. This is not normal. People are mean and cantankerous in other places. They're not here. There's just not, there's a special spirit of grace and maturity that the Holy Spirit has given us. But I was still anxious. And I said to myself, well, I'm praying every day. I guess I need to pray more. So I found a notebook and I went to eBay. That's what you do when you're anxious. <laughs> I went to eBay and I uh, looked for a prayer rail, a prayer kneeler. And I bought one for my office and for my home. So I bought two. You know, one's not enough. And so I bought two. And I began to carve out some more islands of prayer in my life. And I used to, I wrote the prayers down in a notebook. And I've kept a prayer notebook for many years, but I wanted a special one for these prayer kneelers. And so I began to plead with God to come through. And anything that would come to mind that would create a little fear or anxiety in me, because I'm a whole lot more worried about me failing you than you are failing God. Okay? Anything that would come across my heart and mind, I would write down. And I would pray through. And I looked this afternoon, and I've got 74 specific definable requests since May of last year. Now I've got two other prayer notebooks. I haven't asked just for 74 things. I'm not that I'm not that much of a slouch in prayer, okay? I've got one by my recliner and I've got one in my bedroom. So I've got a lot of requests going on. Just this I'm talking about one notebook people, okay? I just prayed 74 days since May of last year. But 74 specific and definable requests there. A lot of those requests can't be answered till later. I'm asking God to keep us unified with the Great Commission's Facilities Committee, two services, that kind of thing. Well, that didn't happen yet, okay? I'm praying about that. So 
those requests cannot all be answered. So with those requests, I've got 74 requests. And I looked today, and there are 46 specific, definable answers to those requests. So that's how I'm seeing the future. And I shouldn't be surprised because God said in his son, ask it shall be given to you. And if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father who's in heaven. And then I read his commandments. And apparently that's important to God, so I pray about that too. Uh, uh, Ephesians 4.3 uh, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the body in the spirit of peace and love. Well, apparently that's, that's, uh, that's really important. And you know what? We've gone through some things and that's happened. Ain't nobody mad. Tore out of the fray. It's remarkable. And so his commandments, I ask him to do those and ask him for help and the promises. So I'm looking at the future as if God's going to answer these prayers. He's going to keep his word. He's going to keep his promises. Do you want to know what the future is? The future is not a dour thing. The future is not something to fear. The future is not something to create anxiety. The future is something that is defined by the promises of God. You want to know what the future is going to look like? Read the Word and read the promises. That's what God is going to do. He's going to repeat what He did with Israel. He's going to repeat what he did in the life and ministry of Christ. He's going to do here what he did in the, in, the, in the book of Acts. He's going to give us power to live the commandments of God. The future is as bright and as real as the promises of God. That's what we do with the promises. And that's how we see it. So, uh, at that prayer kneeler, I also pray each day through a proverb and ask God to do that. And uh, that's changed my heart and life. You know, I got the sweetest wife in the whole wide world. I do. And um, she is my sweet, soft, southern thrill. She is. But there were times when she would say things to me, and it would hurt my feelings. And. I feel silly and foolish, but she didn't mean to. And so I started praying about it. And you know what? My feelings haven't been hurt in a long, long time by a single thing she said. Isn't that remarkable? The future is defined by his promises. So there's another thing I'm doing in prayer. And I got to let you go in a minute. The choir's got to practice. When I uh, get up in the morning, I put my feet on the floor and I immediately start going through the Lord's Prayer. And I start praying that. And then at the end, I start making some bold, faith-filled confessions, statements, And I finish it, and I say, um, kind of rehearse Psalms 5, verses 1 through 3. Give ear to my word, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. 
for unto thee will I pray. My voice wilt thou hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I lift up my prayer unto thee and look high. So I bow my head in prayer and then I look up high waiting for God to answer. And so when I finish the Lord's prayer, here's what I do. I say, God, today, you're going to act like a father. I'm going to watch for that today. And you're going to act like one not far away in a distant land, not in a prison, not in a state of disinterest. You're going to act like one in heaven. And then, Father, you're going to walk in such a way that you're going to hallow your name. I'm going to watch for that today. You're really going to come through. Today, and the content and experiences of today are going to be an act of God where he hallows his name. And each of the people I'm praying for, my family, my church, our staff, and others, boss people, hallowed be your name. And then somehow or another, your kingdom is going to come. The lordship of Jesus Christ is going to burst forth in my wife and my children and me and my church and in the invitation Sunday. Somehow, some way. In other words, the day is defined by that request. Hallowed be your name. And then you're going to give us daily bread. Well, good grief, we got three weeks of daily bread in the pantry now. You answer that one before I ever got to it, oh God. Isaiah 65, 24. And then you're going to be quick to forgive when we turn to you with our guilt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or trespasses. And you're going to help us forgive others. I get worried about something and I swim in it too long. And so I need to have that. And then you're, you're going to keep us from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. So today is going to be a day of victory. Lord, you, you said that you're going to do this. Jesus told us to pray this way and he wasn't joking. He wasn't teasing us. And so we pray this way. Now God... I'm going to watch the rest of the day to see you come through. That's the first 15 minutes of my morning. That's how it starts every morning. And ladies and gentlemen, that directs me for the balance of the day. Let me tell you what, the greatest, listen, today is the greatest day I've ever lived. Because God has defined this day by his promises. Mm. So I want to tell you, if you're not productive, you can't be with Genesis 15. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Oh, Lord, I bless you. You're so good and so great. And I want to pray that you'd help us.